All right, hello, church. We're going to go into scripture reading this morning. Um, the passage for today is in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 41 through 48. If you'd like to follow along with a physical Bible, there are Bibles um, in the pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1600. While you're turning there, we will have AMA at the end of the service, and so if you have any questions that you would like to pose to Devin, um, there will be a number on the screen throughout the sermon that you can text your question to, and we'll hopefully address it in AMA. All right, Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Becca. One more day until spring. Didn't feel like it yesterday, but let's not talk about that. Uh, Before I launch into the sermon today, I want to throw in just another plug for next Sunday's event that's just titled Discipleship Lessons I Learned from the Early Church. Um, One of my favorite things about getting not just to serve this church, but to getting to serve the church in Madison is that there is this sense amongst leaders and, and congregations around this church that when one church does well, everybody's doing well. And when one church is hurting, everybody's hurting. And so when we're divided from each other, we see it as a problem that we, we like attack head on. I've seen this like time and again in just the short time that I've been ministering in Madison, is that when, like say at the level of leadership in the church, people realize that they have conflict and division, they sit down and they hash it out. And I don't just mean like people who worship or serve at the same church. I mean like pastors of different churches, they, they really fight for unity. And if there's one lesson that I'm guessing a lot of us have learned the hard way in the last few years since the pandemic, it's what it feels like to live in a state of like tense conflict with somebody that we care about. That's the state of affairs in the body of Christ now for like 500 years in the Western church. Catholics divided against Protestants and Protestants divided against other Protestants who are divided against other Protestants. And I mean, heck, read the news today. Catholics divided against Catholics divided against Catholics. Um, at, At this discipleship event, our pastor, Pastor Nick, is going to sit down with the highest ranking Catholic pastor in Madison. 
Bishop Donald Hying. Like, Bishop Hying is entrusted with overseeing 103, I think, different parishes around us. And it's a tremendous honor that he would want to come and talk with us to like seek God together. So if you can at all, block out that next evening, next Sunday evening on your calendar. It will be worth your while. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good day. Thank you, Lord, that we're at the turning of a season. And we know that that turning of a season signifies to us more than just warmer days. It, it reminds us that you are the God who brings about change and brings about new life and growth and restoration. So, Lord, today we ask that you would come and bring spring to the frozen parts of our heart. Lord, uh, we, we confess that we have need of you to teach us, that unless you open our eyes, we will not find the truth. And so I confess for myself that uh, my wisdom is not wise enough and my energy is not sufficient and my eloquence is not enough to touch human hearts in the place that they need. So please come today and be the teacher. Take everything that we offer up to you, like a few loaves of bread, and multiply it to the need. We give you glory for every good thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody recognize that place? It's not from an HBO show or something like that, I promise. No, that, that's a city in Ukraine called Pripyat. And if you know anything about Pripyat, you know that it's just a couple miles away from where a nuclear reactor exploded at Chernobyl in the 80s. Um, so now we have this city just sitting here inside an exclusion zone, abandoned, thousands upon thousands of people excavated, Hard to even really know how many people died as a result of the accident. And if you're like me, sometimes you can have a morbid fascination with like, disasters, and you really want to know what went wrong and why. How did we get here? How come like, this children's playground with a giant Ferris wheel now just sits completely empty and has sat empty for 30-plus years and will probably have to continue sitting empty for another, another couple hundred years? Well, I mean, the answer at like, the most pedantic level is that a guy pushed a button. Like literally, a guy pushed a button. Um, an operator in the nuclear control room saw that the power in the reactor was spiking, so he did what he was supposed to do. He pushed the button that's supposed to turn the reactor off. But he didn't know that that button may as well have been a detonator instead of an off switch, and the reactor exploded. Okay, why did that happen? Why did the off switch blow up a nuclear reactor? And one answer is because his operators, like the folks around him, the folks who were even over him at like a level of authority and management, they were operating the reactor in an unsafe way. Were they just reckless? At some level, yes, but at another level, no. They didn't actually know that what happened to the reactor could happen to the reactor. They'd been told that it was physically impossible. So they thought that even though they were maybe pushing the reactor a little bit, they were thinking about that maybe the same way that you'd think of like redlining your car for, I don't know, five seconds while you pass an 18-wheeler. So why didn't they know? It's because the folks over them had lied to them about what was actually possible. They thought that there was no way that this was going to happen. It's, but some folks did know, and they classified that truth away in some super-secret archive in the basement of some super-secret library hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Moscow. And that's why, at the end of the day, a whole city was destroyed. 
That's why hundreds and probably thousands of people died. That's why there's this giant chunk of nothing right now that surrounds Pripyat, Ukraine, like for miles and miles and miles in all directions. So let's do a thought experiment real fast. And for those of you who don't know what thought experiment means, that's just fancy philosopher talk for use your imagination. What would it have taked, taken to actually stop Chernobyl from blowing sky high? What would it have required? And here's the simplest answer that I think I can come up with. It would have required at least one person who knew the truth to be willing to go and tell the people at Chernobyl the truth. Now, this would have been super risky, right? I don't know how familiar you are with like Cold War history, but if you know anything about the KGP, uh, the KGB are not great fans of the truth. They get willing to get in the way of you telling the truth. You would have ended up in the Lubyanka or disappeared or something. But even if one dude had like, found this paper in an archive and read it and gone, oh my gosh, these reactors could blow sky high and had ran down to Ukraine to warn folks, the next thing that would, we, you would have required is a group of people willing to listen. That would have been just as risky as telling the truth, really, in its day. But I have to, I have to think that, frankly, knowing what I know about human beings, even if we weren't threatened by the KGB, we might not have wanted to listen and we just might have written them off as a crank. Receiving the truth can be really, really costly. It would have meant, for example, like decommissioning those reactors and then living in Pripyat without electricity. Does that sound fun? Would you have been inclined to listen to somebody who warned you about the dangers posed by this nuclear reactor? I mean, maybe, maybe not. Put yourself in that situation, because what I want to say is that is actually sort of the emotional equivalent of what it would have been like to live Luke 19. Jesus looks down on a city, and his heart breaks. He sees that it's about to be destroyed. But instead of like turning his donkey around and heading for another city, he runs right down into the middle of it, sits down, and starts teaching. And that is where the drama begins surrounding Jesus the teacher in the temple. So put yourself mentally in like the control room of the nuclear reactor for a second. You're, you're sitting there. The power output readings are spiking. You know you have to do something. Now if you're like me and you don't really know anything about a nuclear reactor, you wouldn't know what to do. Just imagine instead that you're sitting in your kitchen and suddenly you're looking over a pan on the stove and you see fire, like flames three feet high shooting up. What would you do then? I mean, maybe you run to the faucet, you pour some water and you throw it on the fire, right? Some of us would do that. Some of you in the room are already shaking your heads because you know, oh my gosh, if that's a grease fire, it's going to make things even worse. But let's say you don't know that. So you dump water on it and there goes your kitchen. Maybe your house. You didn't know that water would make a grease fire worse. Some of you do because you learned the hard way. <laughs> Condolences for your eyebrows. Uh, but this is basically what happened in Chernobyl, and this is what's happening all around the world. The problem that Jesus is addressing, the problem that he really sees when he looks down on Jerusalem and weeps, in one word, is ignorance. Ignorance. If only you had known what would bring you peace. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't see it even when it was right in front of your face. And ignorance has terrible, terrible results. 
I mean, the way he's explaining this is basically saying, because you didn't know the truth, because you didn't know what would bring you peace, because you didn't actually recognize and respond to God, the end result is going to be the destruction of the city. If you know your ancient history, you know that a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Romans come and flatten Jerusalem. It's the reason why to this day, if you were to go and visit Jerusalem and went to the old city of Jerusalem, the only thing you would see standing that's still there is like one wall from the temple. That's about it. It's been flattened. I think this is really, really important because in churches like ours, that to our credit, often talk a lot about sin and warn people about the consequences of sin, we don't always correlate sin with ignorance. But Jesus does. Why do human beings do the wrong thing? Why do we do the wrong thing? Frequently, it's because we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to put out the fire that we see. And the means that we use to put out the fire ends up just making it worse. I mean, this is the message of a text like Romans 1, at least in part. Like Romans 1 is trying to explain why human beings sin, why they go astray. What is up? And Paul's answer is that human beings have unreliable minds. They do their level best. They really do their level best to try and figure out what they need to do to live good, righteous lives. But what happens is they go astray and they end up caught in some sin like idolatry, which makes a ton of sense to them, but ends up leading them into complete error that invites the wrath of God eventually. I mean, I don't have a ton of time to go into it today, but that's what's happening in this passage. I mean, why does Jesus cleanse the temple? What, what upsets him so much? Well, I mean, he quotes Isaiah, They're not treating the temple like a house of prayer. They're treating it like a place of business. That makes some sense, but how in the world would scribes and priests have gotten there anyway? They're trying to obey the law. The law commands no graven images. What's on a coin? A graven image. So it stands to reason that you can't bring graven images into the temple of God. Therefore, money changing is like a necessary religious practice in order to protect the holiness of God's house. You see the logic? They're not trying to do anything wrong. They think what they're doing is right and in accordance with the law. But Jesus says no. He reminds us and reminded the scribes and the priests that they needed to consider the whole counsel of God and find a a course of action that lined up with all of God's truth, not just some of it. But the result of sin like that, that illustrates the dangers that come with the teaching office for God's people, the necessity to proclaim the whole counsel of God, the whole truth of God to all the people of God so that all the people of God live in a way that's true and right. I mean, the results of getting it wrong as a teacher then can be that you lead a whole city, a whole people into error so that they eventually invite destruction. It's systemic sin. It's systemic sin resulting from ignorance. The world around us destroys itself with misguided ideas and well-intentioned but destructive behaviors. And I know to some of us that sounds good. It's like, yeah, judgment on the world. They've got it wrong. We're talking about the temple of God here. The judgment of God begins with the people of God. So all of us are obligated to seek as best as we are able the truth of God. Now, don't let me get ahead of myself here, but I've just got to say, um, there's probably no point in the last 75 years that I'm aware of where the world would naturally be so receptive to what I've just been saying in the last four minutes. That 
ignorance leads people into like messy, mistaken behaviors that end up corrupting the world around us so that everything just kind of feels broken. The world is so screwed up that it's basically eating itself alive. I mean, look, look at a problem like population decline. Country after country is reporting that like population growth is dropping to the point where maybe it's not even gonna be sustainable to live there in a generation or two. Like Japan is desperate. South Korea is desperate. Places in Scandinavia are desperate. It's actually kind of a problem here in the States, too. Like, one argument that I read recently, this is, this is fascinating to me. I don't know if this is a majority position, but just the fact that this is, like, a prevalent enough feature of our society today, it, it warrants mentioning here. Um, climate despair is leading lots of people in my generation and younger to decide not to have children because they think it would be morally inappropriate to bring children into a world where the climate is just gonna get worse and worse and worse and where they, in order to live, would have to perpetuate the decline of the climate. So climate despair is so influencing some young people's views of like parenthood and reproduction and procreation that on dating sites, they are advertising that they have had surgical procedures to prevent childbearing, like intentional sterilization, and that's a selling point for them as a romantic partner. That's supposed to tell the people that they, that they want to engage in a relationship with that they are morally serious people who can be trusted to act with care and compassion. Jesus is a little different. Jesus looks at coming disaster and instead of like despairing and running the other direction, he takes his donkey and he points its snout right towards the heart of downtown and the temple. So you have to picture you have to picture Jesus on this donkey, because this is, this is like part of the triumphal entry. Jesus is being hailed as the coming king, the returning king. He's on his way into town, and here's the incongruity. He's just weeping, weeping. This is not like just got crowned Miss America happy tears. This is like ugly crying, because he sees so many of, of, he sees the sights that are in some of the pictures that Bob showed us. He sees the aftermath of destructive war. And he knows what it's going to cost the people who are right now like waving palm branches and welcoming him. And so he's weeping for them. But he keeps going forward. And this, I think, is just one of the most profound pictures of the love of God that I'm aware of in the New Testament. Christ sees the mess we're in, and he weeps for us. And then he comes to us and sits down in the middle of us and starts to teach us. If you ever, ever wonder about the love and the nature and the character of God, picture this, because how many of us, if we looked at what we knew to kind of be a lost cause, would still go and do the right thing there, even if we knew that our efforts were probably not really going to have any sort of effect on the situation. Wouldn't we say, well, where can I be more useful? That's not the way that Jesus responds. This is so important because I, I know that many folks, Christians and non-Christians alike, often feel like God just doesn't like them and God is disgusted with them. Here is Jesus looking at a situation where he has already told you what is gonna happen and it's not pretty, but he goes anyways. That's the nature and the character and the love of God for you. So if you feel like you personally kind of struggle with that, uh, I'm not really sure that God is all that into me. 
there's going to be a book study in this church in the next couple months where uh, Jeff King, our congregational care coordinator, is going to take some, books through, uh, uh, take some folks through a book by a guy named Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, which is all about the heart of Jesus. Totally recommend that you sign up for that. But that aside, just think about the nature and character of God. Think about, think about what it actually takes in the end to get God to the point of wrath. Don't get too hung up on this because it takes an awful lot. I mean, what, what's going on in the days of Noah? God waits to send the flood. He doesn't, he doesn't like read the graph and predict, predict the trajectory and be like, okay, this is the point where it's just gonna get super bad. We should head this off at the pass and send a flood. No, God waits until the heart of everybody on the face of the earth is 100% evil, doing and desiring evil all the time, and only then does he send the flood, and even then does he save Noah and his family or what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Total iniquity. Only then does wrath come, and what does he do? He saves Lot and his family. What's up with Canaan at the time of Israel's conquest of the land? God let his people sit in slavery for 400 years. Why? Because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete, i.e., God cared so much even about the Amorites in Canaan that he would let his people suffer with him for 400 years before eventual wrath came. And what's going on in Jerusalem in the time of Jeremiah? Total iniquity. Jeremiah predicts the overthrow of Jerusalem. That looks a lot like the one that Jesus does. And it comes. And Jeremiah himself is heartbroken. But what does God do? He saves Jeremiah. He saves Baruch. He saves a few of the poor people who were just kind of caught up in the middle of this thing. Even when God does act in wrath, he waits until the last possible second. And he is always eager to save the people who are righteous. God's love is so extreme that he will put up with iniquity until the very end. So that's what you need to have in mind when you see Jesus, like coming down the Mount of Olives, looking out at the city of Jerusalem, just weeping, weeping, weeping. They're calling him David's son, returning to David's city. He knows what they're gonna do in a few chapters. He's been telling us for a few chapters before Luke 19, he's going up to Jerusalem and he knows he's gonna be crucified. But he rides into town anyway. He teaches Jerusalem anyway, and that is the love of God in action. Teaching is one of the most demanding and incredible acts of hope and love available to any human being. It's the love of God addressing human ignorance. When Jesus comes to teach us, we generally react one of two ways. And I think anybody who's been to school can already guess what this is like. Teaching is education, and education makes people upset. If you've, if you've been within 100 yards of a school board in the last couple of years, you know this. I mean, just think about the fights around like, public education in America. What books should be available in the library? What should the history curriculum look like? We get real worked up about these questions, and with good reason, because we know when we project downstream to what our kids and our kids' kids are going to think and believe and understand about themselves and about the world around them, that there is real moral weight attached to those questions. So as important as the, the sort of curricular decisions are, the systemic decisions are, 
Every teacher will probably tell you that it's in the classroom where the real contest takes place. It's in the classroom, not the boardroom, where a human teacher has to look at human students and contend for their hearts and their minds and their attention. Will these people actually listen to me? Or are they just gonna tune out and be thinking about, I don't know, the latest TikTok, whatever. That's the same dynamic that we face day in and day out as Christians. It's exactly that dynamic. Are we gonna look with suspicion on the word of God that comes to us, or are we gonna be like the crowd that runs to Jesus and sits at his feet? Because there's two responses to Jesus in this text. There's the scribes and the priests, the teachers, the folks who want to kill Jesus, literally want to kill him. The teachers of the law are the folks who are looking at the law in flesh and want to kill him. How on earth did that happen? Well, from Jesus' perspective, these teachers of the law are the folks who are already ignorant of the word of God. They don't know. They don't know that Isaiah said, my house will be a house of prayer, because if they had, they wouldn't have turned it into like a shopping mall with a bank outpost inside, right? These teachers have neglected the word of God. They were ignorant of the truth, and so they did the wrong thing. Money changing doesn't protect God's sanctity and authority. It violates his command for the proper way to worship him. And the result... The result is that the whole people go astray. It's not just that the teachers are ignorant of the word, it's that now the people are ignorant of the word too. So that's the teachers, the scribes, the priests on one hand. On the other side though, you've got all the people flocking to Jesus, hanging on his every word. Um, On the one hand, maybe it seems natural to you that, well, of course people would hang on Jesus' every word. But you have to remember that when Jesus went into the temple and flipped everything over and sat down to teach, he wasn't just upsetting the scribes and the priests in their way of doing business. He was changing in front of the people the way that they were used to worshiping God from like the time that they were little. How do all of you react when your church or churches have introduced even minor changes? Like when you shift from classic worship and hymns to contemporary worship, when the lighting changes, when you lose one pastor and another pastor comes and the preaching style is different. We don't react well to change, but This crowd sees Jesus come, flips over the tables, cleanses the temple, normal operations cease, and Jesus sits down to teach. And then they run to him, and they hang on his every word. This is a fulfillment, basically, of another passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah prophesies that when the Messiah comes, he will, quote, teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And he says that the result of Jesus' teaching eventually is going to be that, quote, they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, what's Jesus teaching? What does the Messiah teach? He teaches the things that produce peace. Jerusalem has really been ignorant of Jesus, the Messiah's teaching, that is all about ordering our lives towards the production of peace. And because of ignorance, we get the other thing. We get war. We get destruction. We get the Romans rolling in and destroying. Now, Jesus is still speaking to the church today. He has not developed laryngitis. He is not dead. He is risen from the grave. And because he's risen from the grave, he is not just a historical figure. He is our contemporary, like our living human contemporary right now. This is where we hear him speaking. 
I'll just mention two ways that we can today choose, determine in our hearts that what we're going to do is run into the temple, find Jesus, throw ourselves down at his feet, and hang on his every word. The first way is we can turn to Jesus in Scripture. Um, Scripture is not just a collection of books that were written a long time ago. They're not one old book among many. What makes Scripture Scripture is the fact that when the church reads the book, what they hear The voice that they hear echoing out and redounding through the whole book is the voice of Jesus. A passage that I come back to again and again and again on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, explaining to the Corinthians how they know he's a good apostle and why some other folks aren't. And he explains to them very clearly that this is what happens when a Christian reads the Bible, and this is how you know they're really a Christian is when they've turned to the Lord, the veil falls away from Scripture, the veil that was keeping you from really understanding what was there all along. And when the veil falls away, you see in even the law the gospel of God. And the way that Paul describes this, he says it's like looking in a mirror. But when you look into this mirror, the mirror of the Bible, you see a face coming back at you, and that face is the face of Jesus. When you open your Bible to read it, this should be your expectation that you are actually sitting at the feet of the living Jesus in the temple, hearing his words coming to you, addressing you with his own authority, pleading with you to adopt the ways of life that are in keeping with his teaching so that you'll find peace in life. I mean, that's terrifying. That's awesome. And here's the good news, too. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 talks about the problem that human beings have when it comes to actually hearing the word of God and knowing God. Because, I mean, how do you know, just off the face of it, that you wouldn't end up like one of the priests or one of the scribes, the folks who have really studied and think they know what's going on, so that they overlook entirely what Jesus is saying right there in front of them in the temple? Why wouldn't that be you? Why wouldn't that be me? First Corinthians chapter 2 says that nobody can know God. God is mysterious. He's like a He's like a super deep ocean that you just can't see the bottom of. But Paul says that the Spirit of God comprehends everything, fathoms all mysteries, even the depths of God. So if you are a Christian, and if the Holy Spirit lives in you, and surprise, Romans 8, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, that also means that there is no mystery in Scripture that is ultimately beyond you because the Spirit is the principle of understanding all mysteries, even the mysteries of the Word of God. And it's that power that lives in you bringing you knowledge. So here's just a few pointers. A few pointers on how to hear the voice of Jesus coming to you in and through Scripture. You need to pray, you need to read, you need to meditate, and then you need to do Pray, read, meditate, do. I mean, pray. Psalm 119, verse 18. I love what the psalmist says. This is a prayer I pray I don't know how many times a day. 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. It does not matter what your educational background is. It does not matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter if you have a GED or a PhD. What you need to do is come to the Word with a humility that says, Unless you open my eyes, I'm going to miss it. So open my eyes. Rely on him and see what he shows you. Okay, so once you've prayed, submitted yourself to God, conscious that you're relying on him, you actually have to open the Bible and read it. Psalm 130, verse 6. I hope in your word. 
Reading the Bible is an exercise in hope. You go into it ignorant. You go into it dark. You go into it not knowing. But by doing it, you are putting hope into practice. You know, hope expects to encounter something. But hope that's received what it hopes for isn't still hope. So you go in hopeful, though, knowing that God within you has already promised to fathom all mysteries. You go in knowing that the heart of Jesus, no matter how far lost you are, when you're right up at the very edge of destruction and iniquity, the heart of Jesus is still to ride his donkey into the center of your downtown and sit down in your temple and preach to you. So go in confident, go in hope, go in expectation, not of your wisdom, but of the love of God that wants you to know the truth and that wants you to walk in the way of life. Okay, then you've got to meditate. Psalm 119, verse 11. In my heart, I treasure your word. You can go back to the the commandments uh, that Moses first gave to Israel and then that Joshua reiterated. When, When the law comes, he says, you have got to meditate on this day and night. You can't let this law of God pass away from your mouth. You've got to absorb it yourself. You've got to teach it to your children. In my heart, I treasure your word. What do you do with your greatest treasures? How do you keep them? How safe they're? How secure are they? Do you actually know where they are? I mean, if somebody were to just even say, hand you a check for $5,000, and the bank were closed, and your phone didn't work so you couldn't mobile deposit, what would you do with it? You'd put it someplace safe, but then would you remember where it was the next day? Would it still be close enough to your mind that you'd be like, oh, shoot, what did I do with that check? No, you would know exactly where it is. That's the attitude that we should all have with the word of God that we have been asking God to give us insight into, hopefully reading. And then when we actually hear the truth, it sticks. Um, one, one really simple way to improve the likelihood that what you've read and heard is gonna stick, just write it down. Just keep a little journal. It doesn't have to be fancy. Just like a bullet point journal of, this is what I found in the Word today. Bang. And then you've got to do it. This is the second half of Psalm 119, verse 11. In my heart, I treasure your Word. Why? To keep me from sinning. When we read the Bible, we're not just looking for abstract truth. This is like knowledge and action Knowledge and a way of life that are so inseparable as to basically be the same thing. When you encounter the truth of God, it does order your steps. It changes how you live. It changes how you react, or it should, or else you haven't actually read it and understood it. I mean, frankly, this is how this sermon came about for me. Like months ago, when I was reading through Luke, which I've read, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, my favorite parts of Luke are usually like chapter 24, Road to Emmaus, or anyway, I, I won't go through Luke. I'm tempted, but I won't. Um, months ago, when I was reading Luke 19, for some reason, like the compassion of Jesus for Jerusalem just leapt out at me, leapt out at me in a way that I'd never seen it before. And it stood out to me as kind of interesting and significant because uh, this New Testament nerds, people with PhDs who would think about the different presentations of Jesus across the four Gospels, will often point out that in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is way more emotional than he is in Luke. And they're like, well, hang on a second. Why, why is Jesus seemingly less emotional in Luke? And one answer is Luke seems to be writing maybe for a more philosophically inclined audience and ancient philosophers placed a really high premium on mastery and control over one's emotions. 
So maybe Luke is trying to win a hearing with a slightly more philosophically inclined audience. Okay. But here, that's why this should leap off the page for us when Jesus is coming down the mountain on the donkey, ugly crying. Because there is nothing less impressive to a Stoic philosopher than a king going down sobbing, right? That just, I'd never seen that before. But that that's the, should, in some sense, be the normal experience of Bible reading. That's, that's a kind of a simple observation. I don't have to... I don't have to have a PhD and no Greek in order to be like, wow, Jesus is crying. What is going on? And then to see the way that Jesus is crying because of his incredible compassion for the people around him. Another way that you can expect to hear God addressing you on the regular is through preaching and Christian teaching. Preaching and Christian teaching. If you look at Ephesians 4, Paul says in Ephesians that God gives people gifts, expressions of grace for the good of the church. Grace is a kind of a fancy Christian word, and we all know that it means gift, right, at some level, but what is the gift that makes Christian grace special? That Christian grace, that gift, is the gift of God's own nature and power. So when Ephesians 4 says that he gives gifts, grace, to the church, what he's saying is that he himself, the risen Christ, empowers people with some of his own power to do and exercise in and for the church the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, king. And one of the gifts that he gives to the church is teacher, teaching. So every time that you come to church, every time that you click play on a sermon, every time that you open a book by a faithful Christian teacher, this should be your attitude. Not to get so hung up on the individual, although like the grace of God does come and perfect our human nature. But don't get so hung up on the human teacher. What you're trying to listen for, what you're trying to discern is not what makes your teacher smart or godly or attractive or funny. What you're trying to discern is the grace of God at work in their life. You should be listening with that same sort of attention that you devote to scripture, listening for that voice. Um, I I once heard a pastor say, this is a pastor who just, enormous church. I have no idea how any one person can, uh, can govern such an enormous church. But what he said is that when he listens to a sermon, doesn't matter who he's listening to, whether it's some guy who's still in seminary or Tim Keller or, you know, insert the name of your favorite pastor. This is what he does. He listens with his eyes shut until he hears one thing echo in his heart that he knows is for him from God, and then he stops and meditates on that thing. Doesn't matter where it is in the sermon. It could be in the first 30 seconds, and he knows God has spoken to him. That's the thing he clings to. Could be the last sentence of the sermon. That's the thing he clings to. Now, that's a little bit extreme, but I think the attitude is a great one. Don't just go to be entertained. A sermon is not a Sunday morning public speaking experience. You are coming near to listen to Jesus, the teacher. You are coming to sit at his feet in the temple. You're coming to hang on his every word. Doesn't mean everything that comes out of my mouth is that word. But frankly, if Jesus isn't the one empowering me and speaking to you some things and making some things come alive in your heart that may not even have occurred to me, then maybe I don't have the grace of teaching. Now, lastly, before I conclude, 
We just need, I think, one ha-ha, Devin is kind of charismatic moment. Um, for some of you in this room, I always used to hate it when people would say that from this pulpit. For some of you in this room, for some of you in this room, you're, you're thinking to yourself, Devin, that's, that's all well and good, but I can't hear the voice of God. I've tried for years. I've tried for decades. I don't hear the voice of God speaking to me. What do I do if I am that person and I am convinced that God is not speaking to me? Not in the Bible, not in preaching, not in my spouse, not in my friends, nothing. I have never heard the voice of God. First thing I would say to you is this. That is super difficult. I know what that feels like. But here's the second thing I would say to you. The first step to overcoming that situation is repentance. Repentance. And here's why. It's because at the end of the day, you have believed a lie just as surely as Adam and Eve in the garden believed a lie. Beneath the lie that says, I can't hear God, is a more fundamental lie, which is that God isn't powerful enough to speak to me in a way that I can hear and receive. You can believe that God is speaking, but in order to believe that you can't hear it, you have to believe that he can't get through to you. And that is a thought that's unworthy of Almighty God. Do not be more confident in your inability than you are in God's ability. Nobody's ears are naturally attuned to God's voice, but this is the promise that you can repeat to that lie every time it comes. Here's the lie. I can't hear God. Here's the response. My sheep hear my voice. He opened deaf ears. He can attune your ear and mind to hear him. Hearing God is trusting confidence in him that his heart is the heart of Jesus that runs into town and speaks even to people that he knows won't hear. So in that, in repentance, set aside time to seek him. Set aside time to actually listen in the ways that I've just outlined, talking about the Bible and about preaching. And by the way, surprise, if any of that hits your heart a little bit right now, it's actually working already. You all can join me and uh, please stand. Now, Chernobyl, what happened in Pripyat wasn't just a failure of science or some sort of communist bureaucratic blunder. At the end of the day, it was a failure of love. The people who knew didn't speak. Love will tell us the truth even when it comes at a personal cost. And since Jesus tells us the truth, the onus is now on us. What are we going to do? What will we do? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love takes no pleasure in evil but rejoices in the truth. Jesus delights in the truth, so he teaches us. If we take delight in the truth, we will listen to him. We have to imagine that all of us in this room, all of us in this church, aren't just citizens of Madison. We're citizens of the kingdom of this world, and all around us there are super dangerous nuclear reactors that are definitely being mismanaged and are absolutely going to blow up at some point. It's going to happen. So this is what we do. We run into the temple, we sit at the feet of Jesus, we listen to his words, and then we live like we believe what we've heard. Now, let's not kid ourselves. Knowledge isn't everything. Jesus knows that the people who are listening to him now are still going to crucify him in a few chapters. But it's also true that when we get to Acts chapter 3, and the church is born, and people are repenting left and right, Peter can look at the crowds and say, I know that you and your leaders acted in ignorance. Don't get comfortable with ignorance. It is our duty as Christians to grow in grace and in knowledge of the truth, and that is hard work. That is education. But the truth remains that Jesus wants us to know him. He wants us to know the truth. And so he is speaking and he is able to give us ears to hear. It is his spirit in us empowering him, empowering us to know and receive the truth. So if we listen to him, we'll find life. We'll be saved from the mushroom cloud. 
And so to you, the only wise and loving God, be all glory in the church, now and forevermore. Amen.